so go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 14. Um, and we're going to be looking at the, the first 12 verses of Romans 14 today. And just to kind of get us up to speed, um, from these first, you know, as Paul has been working us through this letter, this is a letter from Paul to the church in Rome. It's a pastoral letter, a letter of instruction and encouragement. Um, and it's just a beautiful, mind-bending, informative, transformative letter um, to the church in Rome as well as for us. And for the first 11 chapters, Paul, he has painstakingly laid out the gospel. And to summarize kind of what he lays out is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And he's, he's gone through showing us our great need for salvation as well as our great salvation and God's gracious, merciful work in Christ. And then, and then the experience of the experience of our, of our salvation in the gospel. So he's helped us to understand it as well as to experience. It's not just, it's not just a head thing. It's also a heart thing. And, and then we come to chapter 12. We've been in it for, uh, we came to chapter 12 the week before Thanksgiving actually. Uh, then we took a little Advent break, and we've been kind of working through it since the beginning of the year. But Paul transitions in chapter 12 um, to show that our life will be one of, of grateful, uh, grateful and, and, and kind of joyous love as we live as those who have been transformed, are being transformed, and are living sacrifices unto God, that our life belongs to God, and everything that we do belongs to Him, and everything that we do and are is meant to be an offering that honors Him, that points to Him, calls the world to His goodness and His love, and also, uh, quite thankfully, leads to us experiencing that itself. So this comes... So then, so then as we think about this and living with this grateful, joyous love as these living sacrifices, this, this is made possible, this experience of this was made possible by how we relate to others being utterly transformed. And, and to say that, to say others, let's make sure that we see that it starts first and foremost how we relate to God. God has made it that we can relate to him without fear. We, maybe you've heard perfect love cast out fear because fear is to do with punishment. And Jesus took on our guilt. He took on our punishment. And we are now innocent and free. So we relate to God with, with first off, just close relationship, a one-on-one -on -one real relationship. He's restored that. And also without fear because of his grace in Christ. And again, to come back that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's why that matters. So first, how we relate to God has changed because of what Jesus has done. And then that's also changed how we relate to one another. We, we relate to one another with the same grace and mercy and kindness and, 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 and long-suffering and patience and purpose that, that Jesus did towards us. So we, we, see, we see that as we were given the identity in Christ, it also affects how we relate to one another. And we're able to do so in unity because of Jesus. And then also how we relate um, to I guess that's a redundant. I, was, oh, I got out of order. Others, other Christians, and then ourselves, how we relate to ourselves. Our, our sin is no longer our identity. It's just an activity, and we don't have to keep condemning ourselves. We get to see ourselves the way that God sees us, that we are redeemed, restored, renewed. We're made whole. Again, we're innocent, and God says, hey, I see you this way. Go back and listen to Romans 6, um, the couple of sermons on Romans 6. One of the things that was beautiful is that God, he took painstaking moments to say, hey, I see you this way, but I need you to see you this way. It matters that you see yourself the way that God does as a, as a child that he loves, as one that he restores, as one that he's created with purpose and restored that purpose to fullness. So again, how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to others, and then also how we relate to both friends and enemies in the world. 
just those that are outside of the body of Christ. So all that's been changed, and that's part of how we experience this, experience this grateful, joyous love of a life offered to God as a living sacrifice. So today we have this object lesson as we come to Romans 14 that comes directly from a very specific interpersonal dynamic that the church in Rome is facing, the Christians in Rome are facing. So it's, it's really helpful for us as we're thinking just practically the implications of these realities and what we're meant to experience and live out. So... Um, just a couple of weeks ago, we did a covenant partnership class, and we had um, some people in there. And this is covenant partnership is what we call membership, and we do this class so that people can understand who we are, like w- w- what they're committing to, um, what their opportunity is. But one of the questions we asked that I want to ask you today is: is what is your religious background. And I know like if this were a dinner party, I'm not supposed to ask that, uh, but this is church, so we can, because we figure that we're all here, at least we, we, we've, we've said the religious conversations are okay. So what is your religious background? And I'm actually going to throw out some options, and if you are so inclined and feel comfortable, I would love for you to raise your hand if this applies to you. Okay, so we're going to go through some denominations here, right? So if you grew up kind of in a Southern Baptist background, we'll just start with what I grew up in. Southern Baptist, any other Baptist, go ahead and throw your hands up in there too, right? Okay, good. It's good, good. Um, so how about Methodist? How about Lutheran? How about Episcopal? How about Catholic? Right. So how about, some, how about some other things? How about just an other religion besides some, some form of Christianity? Anyone grow up not Christian? Maybe Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or, right? Thank you. Maybe just non-religious at all, you know, atheist agnostic. I mean, yeah, we, so we have those. So again, so think about this. Like, look at this room, and these are, you are all people that have opted in to come, and you're here, and we're all saying that we're about the same thing, but yet we all come in with all sorts of different backgrounds, and although we're all, especially if we grew up in Christian denominations, we're under Jesus, but yet we all had little differences. And then if you came from outside of Christianity, for sure you had different cultural and historical norms that were just natural to you. So wherever we come from, we bring some of that with us, yet we're supposed to live in unity. Like, how in the world could we ever live in unity? I mean, I mean imagine, like, like, again, let's just let it play out for a minute. Imagine the potential Jerry Springer show that, that's, that's possible at any given moment that comes out of this dynamic with great sincerity. I mean, I've been in some awkward small groups. I prom- I mean, like, where it's just like, uh, should, should, I, should, we, should I be here right now? Like, uh, do I, need to, like, do I need to step in and say no chair throwing, please? Like, I've, I mean, it's, it's just potential, and, the, and yet Jesus tells us that the world will know we are really his, that we are really Christians by how we love and treat one another. And so, man, there's a lot at stake. First off, for your own joy and sanity of living a part of the body of Christ, but then also for the implications of what we're called to do. And, you know, this year we've called our, we've kind of called ourselves to this initiative of every street reached, right? And it's this, and it's this prayer that we want to see that each person represented in here. If you live on a street, that as you look out the door from stop sign to stop sign, you see your doors, your houses. If you live in an apartment, you look out your door and you look from door to door on your floor. And we want to say by the end of 2019 that every one of those doors will have had some kind of intentional gospel connection by the end of this year. And then we'll let the Lord continue to cultivate that and use that as he will. But we've made that commitment this year. And, and, it's, and it's been already beautiful to hear some of the stories from that. And we'll share some of those in days to come. 
But if we really think like, about the implications, like, okay, well, yes, this sounds great, and I love a purpose like this, but if we think about the mess that we have potential to be, I mean, like, this is actually a pretty scary and daunting thing to invite people into, right? So it matters. And, and by the way, thinking of Every Street Reached, I'm going to take a pause to invite you to an opportunity um, in our small groups every, every what, whatever week of the month this is, fourth we do table nights. They're nights where we gather and, and enjoy a meal together with, with the intent of being having space to invite others in. Um, the Seguras, Rudy and Diana, who are in children and TBK today, they work for a ministry called Apartment Life where they serve as the event coordinators for an apartment complex and kind of the hospitality uh, people that welcome in new residents and all that stuff, and they provide inter- you know, events. Well, tonight they're doing a rooftop movie at their complex, um, and they would love to invite any of y'all to come. Where table nights, we, we, we typically intend for, you know, to open up our community so that we could come to them. They could come to us. Tonight, we're saying, hey, one of our own is actually going to where they are. We want to take our community to them. To what we're talking about is being a being a community in Christ that actually could be effective in the in the midst of all of our precarious differences that could be used to show the loving goodness truth of God. And one of the problems when there's not unity is that it's hard to say truth because truth is consistent. And yet when we see inconsistency, it's like, what do we do with that? So if we have any hope, if we have any hope to have any affection for what God has given us here in one another, and any hope of of any real gospel impact on our world around us, today's text's message, not text message, but text's message is vital. So with all that being said, (laughs) good gravy, let's pray. Um, God, we love you, and I'm thankful for your truth. I'm thankful for your grace that you've shown us in sending Jesus, Lord, to claim us, to redeem us, to restore us, to help us, to, to bring us to a place of knowing real hope and peace, God. We thank you that your grace allows us uh, to kind of bump along, meandering along the way, elevating less important things as important things and diminishing important things to less important things, and yet you still call us yours, and yet you still um, you still commit to, to answer what we need every time we ask. Um, and so, Lord, we just surrender this time to you. Take these next few minutes and really um, call us to the same heart you have for your church and the same vision for the world that you have. Uh, all for your glory, all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to go through this text in a little bit more of a logical order today instead of just kind of walking through it in verse order. It's basically verse order, but you'll see it just jumps around a little bit. But just to prepare you, because sometimes things are different, it just throws you off. So there's a heads up. But today Paul is addressing a couple of points. To start with, he's addressing a couple of points of contention in the church in Rome. And, you gotta, and if you don't know, the church in Rome is made up of... of, of uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Gentiles is everyone that's not Jewish. The the church in Rome was established by the Jewish Christians, but then they were kicked out of Rome for about five years. And when they came in, they found a very Gentile church. All all of their norms and customs had kind of been wiped out of the church, and they're trying to figure out what's right, what's true, what should their expression be. So that's what's happening. And so our, 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 our object lesson comes from these points of contention that come from these cultural historical differences between the Gentiles and the Jews. Jews. So so what are these differences? Let's look at uh, 1 verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3 and then just the beginning of verse 5 to see what these problems are. 
So as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And then we come to verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So these are our problem. Let's define them real quick. Overall, Christians... Just the overall, like we see it here, as for one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not for quoting over opinions, and then uh, don't despise, right? So overall, what he's saying is that those who are in Christ together need to stop passing judgment on one another over what? What did that say in verse 1? Over, don't quarrel over matters of opinion, over disputable matters, and so he's saying, hey, I'm seeing way too much uh, this posture, this spirit of rejection instead of acceptance amongst one another. And so when we think about what are these matters of opinion that he's saying, you know, don't despise each other over, don't quarrel over, it is important to define those, right? So what we're talking about when we say matters of opinion, maybe you could look at it, uh, one of the ways it was often kind of looked at as matter of conscience, like these conscience choice or uh, disputable matters in the things of God. And to think about what a disputable, disputable matter would be, it would be these things that, that we see as important, but maybe God has not spoken blatantly for or against a matter. But we see them as kind of present in the, the full um, communication of kind of the redemptive narrative uh, that God has given. And so what we see is calling us not to quarrel, not to have judgment over disputable matters, things that God didn't either blatantly um, say abstain from or say uh, commit your lives to. Both of these uh, problems that we see about what you eat and the days you observe, they're both uh, connected to, um, again, like I said, the, the historic Jewish laws for what made you clean and unclean. If you go through Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14 or just kind of the, you know, much of the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, you will see all of these laws and stipulations of what you must do. And it's all about them being clean or unclean, able to come into the presence of God. God's a holy God. You've got to be holy to be in his presence. And so this was all a way so that you could be in communion with God and recognize that. That's really important. Just a quick little asterisk of like God's heart. It wasn't control. It wasn't so that you could measure up. It was God ensuring a way for us to be able to have relationship with him. Us, a sinful, fallen people who could not be before a holy God, he made a way for us to be in fellowship with him. But that's what these laws are all about. So the, the, the food laws of what you could eat, when you could eat it, what you need to do if you did eat it, and then also the, 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 the festival days, all the days of the calendar that they did all these things to offer sacrifice and thankfulness and to stay in good standing. Again, we're not going to break all of those down. Um, it is a wonderful thing to study, but for the sake of our time and our purpose of the text today, just, it is about these rituals and ceremonies of what it was to be unclean or clean, able to be in the presence of God. So these, these weren't frivolous. It's not frivolous matters. It's not that it's, you know, it's like things that do matter. So because, again, in the Old Testament, you were either qualified or disqualified to worship in the temple, again, like I said, which is where the presence of God dwells, in, in accordance to these things. 
So, so they, were, they were quarreling over, are they still important, basically, right? So what are the, so just as we're kind of moving through to help us connect a little bit to why this matters, let's just think personally, what are the opportunities that we run into today for this kind of division and judgment, the, the quarreling over things that are not necessarily very, like, ultimately clear, Right? Maybe we'll start off kind of surfacey and safe, and we'll get a little bit more personal as we go, okay? How about, I mean, like, has anyone ever heard of a church splitting over the kind of music they play? You know, or some of you grew up in traditions where instruments weren't allowed. We have instruments here, right? I mean, like, so you're already confronting that. I mean, I've, you know, so the kind of music you play, the tone of your worship, how liturgical it is, all those things. The size of your church. Should you be a small church or a big church? Like, those are things that actually become quarrelsome, disputable matters between, uh, between uh, people of God. How the church uses its money, that's a big one that can cause disputable, that, that causes a, a conflict. Baptizing babies or not, right? Do, you, do we baptize babies or not? Um, your, your view of the expressive gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophesying, um, your interpretation of a biblical sexual ethic. Who should be married? What, what, what is the um, standing before God for, for LGBTQ plus relationships? These are all things that are wrought with opportunity for conflict that are actually disputable matters uh, in some degree. What is the most important, or you can even just get thinking about the most important purpose of your church, of us. Like, you know, what, what do we commit ourselves to? Should it be for caring and building each other up and about what, you know, m more than about what's outside of our church? Or maybe it's that we should be more about what's outside of our church. And then if that's where you land, then is it, okay, should we be more about homelessness? Should we be more about refugees? Should we be more about sex trafficking? Should we, should we be more about drug addiction? Should we be more about foster or orphan care? All of these things, and these, this is case study stuff. Like This is all stuff that I've either been directly in conversations with where it's been contentious or I've just heard of it being destructive, and yet what we're told is that these should not be a cause for um, judgment and despising. There's something that's really difficult, and then, uh, sorry, not, thinking of just maybe if you're here and you're not a Christ follower, you know, there's something that's really difficult for you to swallow when, when you observe this in the church. And, I, I, and I've heard someone say, how do we know that anything is true if I can come here and hear one thing and yet go to the next street down the corner, the next church down the street, and hear something totally different? How do I know anything's true? So therefore, it's ahui. And I know you've heard that. I know you have. I've heard that. And I've wrestled with it. And so first, to, to respond to that, I, I pray these differences are only about disputable matters. If, if these differences are over things that pertain to, to uh, the, the essentials of salvation in Christ, of who God is, who Christ is, the way in which we are saved, um, then that's a whole other conversation. I pray that these are only over disputable matters matters. And then secondly, this is only to show how great of a need for, we have for what Paul is teaching us in this text. So I pray that you would bear with us and afford us an audience for a little while. So if we're saying don't judge those who are weak, um, don't quarrel over disputable matters, 
I think it's also important to, to define what does it mean to be weak? What does it mean to be weak? What are we talking about? The, the weak brother, the weak sister. Just out of the gate, and we can see it here in the text, the weak here is not a non-believer, someone who does not acknowledge Christ as Savior. Uh, verse, verse 3 says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. And we'll come back to this in a little bit to go into this further, but just what we see is that they are part of God's restored family, and that only happens in Christ. So it's not that they're, they're not Christ followers. So it's not that, although, well, I mean, so, so what we know is that um, although God loves all of his creation, when it comes to our righteousness and salvation, there's only one way we're acceptable, right? That's what I was saying, that that's through the work of Jesus Christ. So again, we to be welcomed by God is to be welcomed in Christ. It's the only way in which we're able to be welcomed. It also doesn't mean that they trust Jesus less. The weak person doesn't, it's not that they have less faith. For this context of this text, the weak are those that have a remnant of legalistic faith where their acceptance before God was maintained through a system of outward behaviors and rituals. So they have that remnant. So we're really talking about the Jews here. Um, it's, it's not that the weak are less committed either, because if you really think about it, it is the, the weak in this sense, those who have a, 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 a limited view of, of our righteousness before God that are actually probably working the hardest to do right. They're probably working the hardest, so it's definitely not that they're less committed they probably present being more committed, and the reason that they despise those who look down on them is because they say, oh, well, you're, you're licentious, you're taking your faith for granted, you're, you're, you know, you're copping out. And so they're probably more committed. So what are the weak? Well, we see the weak have a saving faith, but they have some, they've come up short of recognizing that our behavior before God does not make us any more loved or accepted by him. And they're still hanging on to some behavioral righteousness that puts them in a position of favor before God. And let's look, so you know it's not just me or Paul, let's look to Jesus too, Mark 7, 14 through 23. Jesus liberates the, the, those who are following him to this reality. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. They were like, hey, what, what does this mean? This sounded, I don't get it. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared, all food's clean. clean. Food can no longer make you unclean. He says, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So the weak person has either forgotten or has not come to the place of realizing the extent of freedom and transformation that has been achieved through the work of Jesus Christ in theirs and others' lives. They're still driven to attain their own holiness 
through their measures. And by the way, in the Old Testament understanding, the historic Jewish understanding, they were right. The unclean defiles the pure. And the beauty of Jesus is that the clean purified the defiled. Jesus made us clean and worthy. Tim Keller, Timothy Keller, Tim Keller says this, the weak are any Christians who tend to promote and regard non-essential cultural and ceremonial customs as being critical for Christian maturity and effectiveness. And, and, and we don't, again, don't mistake this. The outward life absolutely matters. We would be missing so much scripture if we deleted it all that was to do with the outward life. We'd be missing most of the New Testament. The outward life matters, but it is meant to be shaped by the reality of what God has accomplished in you through Christ, not what you accomplish for him. Do you hear that? The outward life matters, but it, your outward life is meant to be shaped by the reality of what God has accomplished in you and Jesus and you living in orientation to that every day as opposed to you working to accomplish something for him to earn something. One last quick thought on this. It's possible to be weak in one moment and strong in the next. Paul, he, he addresses a very similar dynamic in 1 Corinthians, addressing the church in Corinth, but it's actually to another audience. So here it seems that he's writing to the Jewish audience who are still being bound to the old law of, of purity laws. But in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8, we see that Paul is addressing uh, the burdened conscience of the Gentile who is, who is not eating meat that was offered to false idols. They were saying, we can't eat that meat because it was to idols, but they were liberated just the same. And so we see that in that, in that text, they were the weak ones. And so what's, so what's beautiful about that is that we just have to be humble. We have to be free to be uh, disciples of Jesus growing along the way, making our best offering today. Hey, Lord, as best as I understand, here is my life unto you, and recognizing that today God may just absolutely break me and open my eyes to some false understanding I have. And guess what your opportunity is? It is to say, thank you, God, and, if, and repent if you need to, and then begin in your new reality, every, being renewed and anew every day in Christ. His truth is not changing. We are. That's beautiful. Because again, there, we, can't, we will never be perfect, so we must be changing. If, we are, if our trajectory of our life in Christ is moving towards his perfection, that we will see come to fruition in the last day or the day that we return to him. Go check out Philippians 1.6. And this, is, this also connects to a theme that we've been hitting a lot in the past few months, that we are all sheep and we're all shepherds. A sheep's a sheep. We know what a sheep is. To make sure we're clear on the shepherd terminology is the caregiver. What do they do for the sheep? They protect the sheep. They provide for the sheep. They care for the sheep. They chase the sheep down when they stray. They mend them when they break their leg. We are all sheep and we're all shepherds. And if we want to be a church, a body of Christ, a family of God, that again, that, that exists with a joyful gratefulness for one another and any kind of effectiveness in this world, we have to be willing to be both at any given moment. In one minute, being the weak brother or sister that is needing to be uh, invited along the way to a deeper truth, and in the next moment, doing the same for somebody else. And that's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. It's beautiful. We can't wait until, we're, until we have it all together to be a shepherd. We can't, or else none of us will ever be shepherds. 
We are all those who lead and walk with a limp. Praise God. And his grace is sufficient for us. So, moving along, good gravy. Um, <laughs> a friend and I, a few years ago, many, uh, probably, I don't know, long, long time, ten, ten, at least 10 years ago, we're having a discussion. And honestly, in this discussion, I was the weak brother about what we were talking about. We were having a discussion, more of an argument, about a disputable matter um, that we were on opposite sides on. And as we got to kind of the, the, the peak of our, of our discourse and conflict, he looked at me and he said, well, Heath, you know, if you're too weak for me to do that in front of you, I just won't do that in front of you. And it was, it was a little patronizing, a little edge, and I just wanted to punch him in the face. And, and neither one of us were right in that. So if that's, if that's not how we do this, how do we, how do we respond to one another? Our, and I'll say this, our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of God is the key and, and that's what Paul shows us as we continue in this text. So we're going to move pretty fast from here, I think. We're actually going to come back to verse 1, look at verses 1 through 6, to look at how we should respond as we attempt to do this well uh, together. So as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another anyway? I'm going to add that little word anyway. It's the tone of it. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So we're going to pull out a few things as through these verses. Um, first off, verse 1 as we attempt to do this, don't be quarrelsome. And this is important enough that if anyone is to ever be an elder, a steward of God's community, this is one of the qualifications. Do not be quarrelsome. And so it matters. So don't be quarrelsome. It says, so we should engage in loving and respectful, honest discourse, but not quarrelsome. If there is a weak one, guess what? There is also a strong one in the scenario. The strong cannot be ambivalent toward the weak, saying, well, that's their problem. They'll figure it out. You are responsible. You're the shepherd in that moment. And if you come to see that you are a sheep, be grateful that someone loves you enough to come alongside and lovingly pursue truth together. And that's where we have, if you are the moment of having maybe some greater view of wisdom, actively come alongside inviting, inviting them into a pursuit of Jesus, of Jesus together. Both the weak, and if we look at this text, we see it. If you look at your experience, you know it. Both the weak and the strong are equally likely to condemn the other. And here's the hard part. We don't often know which one we are. We often, we, we, we all think we're the strong ones. Actually, you know what? There's some of you that think you're only the weak ones. And that's not true either. Again, the Lord is 
faithful and gracious to work through us. And there are moments we will be both, but since it's hard for us to know at times, this is what we have to commit to. We have to seek truth together and not just to win your point of view. You've got to together bring your understanding to the truth given through Jesus, the truth, the truth galvanized in Christ. And we have to say, that's what we want. Rosaria Butterfield in a podcast said this. She said, we too often use the word of God to end conversations when we should be using it to deepen them. I mean, like, how do, you, how do you use this? I mean, I guess the first question is, do you use it at all? That's an honest, good question. And then, do we use it as a blunt instrument to injure, or do we use it as the words of life, inviting all of us into an understanding that's deeper than any of us could ever comprehend fully, because it is where the infinite and the finite collide. So we seek truth not just our point of view. And if we keep going, we have to welcome each other as God does. He says, hey, if God accepts him, you have to too in verse three. First off, that we are all image bearers of God. Do you look around you and see image bearers? I was just talking to a friend of mine whose, whose wife works with um, uh, special needs kids in elementary school. And she just came home frustrated every day. Just frustrated. And, and, and just zapped and just regret, like re- resenting and not wanting to go back. And he just, they were talking and in a God moment where he said it with the right posture and her heart was pliable and ready to hear it. He said, let me ask you this. Do, do you see them as image bearers of God? And not just the scourge of your existence, not this, these defiant, difficult kids. And it really shook her in a wonderful way. And, and woke her up to the opportunity. And so first off, we have to just see all of humanity as image bearers of God, worthy of giving honor and dignity as his creation. And then for those who are Christian brothers and sisters, if God sees that someone has been made worthy in Christ, has been justified and innocent and accepted, and he's, he's brought them in to his family. Who are we not to accept them? What grounds do we have to say, I know God has. The holy creator, majestic God has accepted you, but I do not on the grounds of this disputable matter. Who are we? So we have to welcome each other as as God does. And then verses uh, four and five, these are really fun. Um, They say, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. I mean, I just think that's telling us to, like, know our place, one. Like, know our place. We are not their master. We're not the Holy Spirit. We're their brother and sister, co-laborers in Christ. So it's to know our place, but it's also to enjoy our place. It is when you know your place that you're not unnecessarily burdened with the, the, the life expressed through those around you. When you realize you're not God, you're not the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden you're not trying to control everything and everyone. And this is, this is to me. Like, I, don't, I could get confessional. Like, it's, it's real. In the liberating place of just knowing my place, of like, oh, I get to trust this to the Lord. He cares more than me, and he's better at it than me. So know your place and enjoy your place. 
we're not their masters. They're the servant of another. They belong to another. Amen. Think about the price that was paid for them and for you and for me. What a wonderful master. And then verse 5 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So be convinced in your own mind. What does that mean? Can you do what you do in these matters with a clear conscience, aligned with all of God's given revelation and truth, and the life expressed in Christ, carried forward in the early church, consistent with the redemptive narrative? Can you live with a clear conscience, not, not emotions, but again, that right alignment with the truth of God as best as you know? And can you do that with real thankfulness unto God? To be convinced in your own right is to be able to do what you do with a clear conscience and respect to God's truth and his personhood and what you experience of him, as well as with thankfulness. Verse 6 says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, uh, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You do not give thanks to one you are rebelling from. You do not give thanks to one. You are acting in a way that says, I despise your truth over my life. I despise your guarding of your, your, your guardrails to my left and my right. I don't trust you. You cannot be thankful for one you don't trust. You cannot be thankful for one that your affection does not lead to a loving surrendering of your life to. So is your conscience clear? Can you do what you do with an honest sense of gratefulness to God? And as you come to these places, you have to live out your calling inside the calling of Christ. We all, have the, we all have the great commands, love God, love people. We all have the great commission over all of our lives, going to all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit, uh, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I've commanded you. We all have that. We all have this, this purpose of Christ on our lives, but yet we have been all created uniquely and called uniquely. So in this, as you have a clear conscience and you have a grateful heart and a posture of life, you're responsible for living out your calling. Guess what you're not, guess what you're not responsible for? Someone else's calling, that specific calling inside of that purpose in Christ. And so therefore, ipso facto, you are also not allowed to demand someone else to live out your calling. You're not allowed to compromise their conscience. You're not allowed to call them to the carpet as if they are less committed or less true. That's the entire thing in view here if they're not living out your calling. Now, let's hear this. As you are walking faithfully, as, you are, as your life is a living sacrifice and you're stepping into these opportunities and calling, please invite others in. To say don't make them live out your calling doesn't mean you do it alone. That is the opposite of everything we've seen in, in the, the trinity of God carrying forward to everything he's shown us the church to be. Invite others in to your life of obedience unto God, to your fellowship of Jesus as a disciple of him. And you do that either as someone you're discipling just to show them to model a life in Christ or as someone that you're, you see a similar affinity like heartedness, or just because you enjoy hanging out with someone. That's why we get to do that. And who knows what the Lord will do with that. 
But it's not a matter of everyone has to have the same calling as you. That's the beautiful reality of the diversity of the body of Christ. It's not just that we look different and talk different and think different. It's that we actually have a different opportunity in this world in a beautiful mosaic of ways that we will actually see the full effectiveness of Jesus expressed through us, the incarnated body of Christ, the church. What a beautiful thing. Don't, don't diminish the vision and possibility of the church by demanding everyone to be about what you're about in those, in those ways. Again, we're all about the glory of God. We're all about the name of Jesus being lifted high. We're all about salvation in Christ, but yet we each have different abilities and opportunities. So be humble, be pliable, and, and be patient in these disputable matters. And then we come to the last verses, which is amazing that we're going to hit these so fast for all that's in here. But live every day unto the Lord as one who has been claimed by him. This brings us back to 12, 1 and 2, living, being living sacrifices. Let's read those last verses. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. After all, guys, he is sovereign over life and death. Every breath we have is is has been given by God. Every breath we're meant to have by God, we will have. What a great comfort. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, and he might be Lord, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living forever. Why do you pass judgment on your brother then? Like, or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. And every one of us have an equal sentence and an equal hope. Without Christ, every one of us, dead. In Christ, every one of us, equally made to belong in the family of God, holy and acceptable once again. And he says, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So live in a way that your life gives an account to God, not to mankind. Live in a way that expects your, your brother and sister next to you to give an account to God and not to you. That's how we stay humble. As living sacrifices, we are not our own. We have been bought with the precious price of the blood of Christ. Do you see, if, if you know them, do you see our mission statement and core values in this? I just, I, I, I don't know how we came up with these without really studying this text, like in full. Like, I feel like, I feel, as, I, as I see our core values and mission statement, I'm like, gosh, it's this chapter. Like, it's, so somehow the Lord did it another way. But, you know, our, our mission statement is that we commit to a journey of transformation together toward Jesus for the glory of God. Again, that's this posture of life where we say, I pursue Jesus and I invite you into life with me, and as maybe you encounter Christ as, as I do, he'll transform us as he does. Again, I don't transform you. And that's specifically if we're talking about reaching those who are not, say, those who don't know Christ and redeeming the world, that's really important because, sadly, the church has often required people to do only what Jesus can before they're ever allowed in. So, again, if we want to see every street reached, this, this is demanded of us to say, hey, I'm going to pursue truth. I'm going to invite you to truth. I'm going to expose you to truth, lived out and in taught. And man, Jesus 
will transform. We can trust him to do so. We commit to live in biblical community, this way of life where we are humble but purposeful, where we are sheep and we are shepherds. That's the biblical community we're talking about. We commit to submit full biblical authority. Thank you, TVK director. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it is, again, like, and what we're talking about is the authority of Scripture, the authority of God's revealed truth. Again, we, we pursue truth together, not to win arguments or to win people to our point of view. So that's why that matters. And so we can't miss Jesus in all this. We talked about earlier having the spirit of rejection over acceptance. I mean, what if Jesus would have came with a spirit of rejection instead of acceptance? What if he came into, our, into this, this world that was broken? And just imagine coming from heaven and humbling himself to earth and putting on this, these nasty earthly clothes. And if he would have came with a spirit of rejection instead of acceptance, he would have just hated what he had to do and wear all the time. And he would have resented every one of us because we are the reason that he had to do that. So don't miss Jesus. He engages you in this world with the spirit of acceptance, not rejection. He gave his life so that you could be accepted and not rejected. And then... Again, not by what you do or have done, but by what he has done and continues to do. As your advocate before a holy God, saying, and when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin any longer. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. That's what he's done for you and me. That's, what he's, that's the spirit of acceptance. And then the clean versus the unclean. There is no reason we should be considered clean. You know that, but yet we are. And you would, it would be wonderful if the day we called on Christ, all the things that make us unclean stopped. But every one of us have once again soiled ourselves with, the, with the, just the mire of sin as we have forgotten who we are. And yet, we are clean. We are clean. God, we love you. Um, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for Jesus. Or without Christ, where would we be? We would be lost. We'd be aimless, headlong into destruction, maybe not even knowing it. And then as a people, where would we be without Christ? We would be resentful. We would be controlling. We would be weary and tired. So, Lord, because of Jesus, I pray for a fullness of joy and hope every day because we are victorious in Christ. The hope of tomorrow gives us our view of today. And it also would bring unity amongst us as the family of God. Let us bear one another with hope and love and patience and truth. Let us truly commit to pursue you, Jesus, and to do that together and to trust you to transform us, to, transform, to trust you to make us new every day, for us to be humble and courageous and bold. In Jesus' name.